The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 44, to the chief musician, a contemplation of the sons of Korah. We have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us the deeds you did in their days, in days of old. You drove out the nations with your hand, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples and cast them out, for they did not gain possession of the land by their own sword, nor did their own arms save them. But it was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your countenance, because you favored them. You are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Through you we will push down our enemies. Through your name we will trample those who rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, nor shall my sword save me. But you have saved us from our enemies, and have put to shame those who hated us. In God, we boast all day long and praise your name forever, Selah. But you have cast us off and put us to shame, and you do not go out with our armies. You make us turn back from the enemy, and those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. You have given us up like sheep intended for food. You have scattered us among the nations. You sell your people for next to nothing and are not enriched by selling them. You make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and a derision to those all around us. You make us a byword among the nations, a shaking of the head among the peoples. My dishonor is continually before me, and the shame of my face has covered me. Because of the voice of him who reproaches me and reviles, because of the enemy and the avenger, all this has come upon us. But we have not forgotten you, nor have we dealt falsely with your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. But you have severely broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or stretched out our hands to a foreign God, would not God search this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Awake, why do you sleep, O Lord? Arise, do not cast us off forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our body clings to the ground. Arise for our help and redeem us for your mercy's sake. Okay, we're in the final portion of Numbers chapter 35. Uh, it is going to be Christmas this week, and instead of doing a Christmas sermon, we nobody disagreed, so I said I'd like to do this instead. It is appropriate. Jesus is the high priest of Israel, but he came as a child in order to perform that, all right? He is our Lord. He is our Savior, and he had to be born in order to become those things to us, all right? If you understand what we're going to talk about today— then you will understand the significance of Christ's ministry all that much more, and it makes Christmas all that much more wonderful. So I think that it's something you will appreciate. Having said that, the verses I'm about to read you are very, very complicated. I don't think that some of you will get it on the first go-through. You may have to get a printed copy and read it several times, all right? 
once you get it, once you understand what is being portrayed here, you are going to be astonished. It really is. And even if you don't, you're getting the information, you're getting the word of God in your life, but it is really an astonishing passage. If you take in context what was said in the first passage, the second part of the passage, and then this week, you take them together and you see what God is doing with these cities of refuge and protecting the manslayer, convicting the murderer, you'll say, that is really marvelous. And then next week, we'll finish out the book of Numbers. And not only finish out the book of Numbers, it's uh, a passage which is dealing with inheritances. And it makes, what I'd like everybody to do is what I challenged Sergio to do this morning. Go home and read the 13 verses of Numbers chapter 36. It'll take you two minutes to read. And then I want you to think this week, why did God put that there at the end of Numbers? And not only that, don't just look at it as an isolated thing. Why does it come after the passage we're looking at? Because they all fit together. It really is marvelous. Okay, Numbers 35, 22 through 34. However, if he pushes him suddenly without enmity or throws anything at him without lying in wait or uses a stone by which a man could die, throwing it at him without seeing him so that he dies while he was not his enemy or seeking his harm, then the congregation shall judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood according to these judgments. So the congregation shall deliver the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood, and the congregation shall return him to the city of refuge where he fled. And he shall remain there until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. But if the manslayer at any time goes outside the limits of the city of refuge where he fled, and the avenger of blood finds him outside the limits of his city of refuge, and the avenger of blood kills the manslayer, he shall not be guilty of blood, because he should have remained in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer may return to the land of his possession. And these things shall be a statute of judgment to you throughout your generations in all your dwellings, Whoever kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the testimony of witnesses. But one witness is not sufficient testimony against a person for the death penalty. Moreover, you shall take no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. And you shall take no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge, that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the priest. So you shall not pollute the land where you are. For blood defiles the land, and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. Therefore, do not defile the land which you inhabit in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell among the children of Israel. Concerning the passage before us, Albert Barnes says the following, The atoning death of the Savior cast its shadow before the statute book of the law and on the annals of Jewish history, the high priest, as the head and representative of the whole chosen family of sacerdotal mediators, as exclusively entrusted with some of the chief priestly functions, as alone privileged to make yearly atonement within the Holy of Holies, and to gain from the mysterious Urim and Thummim special revelations of the will of God, was preeminently a type of Christ. And thus the death of each successive high priest pre-signified that death of Christ by which the captives were to be freed and the remembrance of transgressions made to cease. What he says is not far off from most other scholars, and it is true, but it doesn't explain the mechanics of what is being relayed in this passage. 
Without the mechanics, it is simply a guess that this is what is being pictured. Oh, we have a high priest of Israel, and Jesus is our great high priest according to the New Testament. Therefore, he and what he did must be prefiguring Jesus, right? That's what he's basically saying. Without knowing how, it is actually not helping us at all to understand the passage. Here we have people in a particular category. They have shed blood without sanction. That is divided into two more categories. The first one is one who did it intentionally. He is a murderer, and he must die. The second did it unintentionally, and he is still guilty of blood. But he can be freed from the guilt. What we will do today is find out the how of the matter as it points to Christ. But we need to do so by understanding how it first works for the person who fled to the place of refuge. If we cannot do that, then we cannot truthfully say that we understand how this points to Christ. And before we do, we should probably define what a murderer is in its most basic form. The reason for this is that if we take the Bible's strictest definition of the words, I'm sorry to say this, people, we are all guilty of it. As this is so, we all need to understand the mechanics of what is going on in our verses today. Our text verse comes from 1 John 3, verses 13 through 15. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that you have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. John says that whoever hates his brother is a murderer. We talked about James's analysis of that a couple weeks ago. He confirmed that we're all murderers, but John does too. I could be wrong, but I'm guessing that everyone has fallen into this category that John spoke of at one time or another. God looks at the intent of the heart, and that is the standard which is brought to bear on the human soul. John was simply citing what the law he grew up under already spoke about from Leviticus 19. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. As the law is written, and it cannot be broken, to hate one's brother in the heart means that person has broken the law. In the breaking of the law, the law, meaning the entire law, is violated. This is why John could say this. Jesus said as much concerning intent. In Matthew chapter 5, everybody loves the Beatitudes, right? In Matthew chapter 5, he said that if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery with her. Intent, it'll get you every time. But there is good news too. We can be freed from the law and we can be given grace. This is the marvel of what God has done in Christ. The mechanics of a part of how this can happen are found in today's verses. It's a marvelous part of his superior word. And so, let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought today is a statute of judgment to you. It's the remainder of the verses of this chapter, verses 22 through 34. So far in this chapter, verses 1 through 8 were given concerning the designation of Levitical cities throughout the land given to Israel. However, there was a stress upon there being six cities of refuge, which was seen in verse 6. After that, the placement and purpose of these cities of refuge were seen in verses 9 through 15. The main point was that they were to be a place of refuge from the avenger of blood for one who accidentally killed another person. 
Then, from verses 16 through 21, the passage spoke of a person who intentionally killed another. For this, the city of refuge was not applicable. Rather, the murderer was to be taken and killed by the avenger of blood. With that directive properly disposed with now, the details of who could seek refuge, how that refuge was to be determined, and the responsibilities and restrictions upon such a person are now given. The logical and orderly way that the chapter is laid out ensures that every detail is stated and then explained so that no confusion or ambiguity would result. With that in mind, the instructions for the innocent manslayer are now precisely defined, starting with, just in time, my mom walked in so she can hear the verses of our sermon today. Verse 22, however, if he pushes him suddenly, ve'im befeta, and if suddenly. The word peta comes from a root signifying to open the eye, and thus a wink. What occurs happens so fast that it cannot be misconstrued as with malice aforethought. There could have been a fight-or-flight reflex that simply took over the situation. This is probably what occurred with poor Uzzah in 2 Samuel 6, verse 6. It says, when they came to Nahon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Unfortunately for Uzzah, his act was one which cost him his life because he touched a most holy object, which was strictly forbidden by the Lord. Verse 22 continues, without enmity. Here the word eva, or enmity, is used for only the second time in Scripture. Interestingly, the only other time it has been seen was way back in Genesis chapter 3, right at the fall of man. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It signifies hostility or hatred. In other words, it is obvious from the surrounding interactions of the lives of the two, either because of close friendship or from not having known one another at all, that there was no reason for there being hostility between the two. Such a state would be evident to any who knew the relationship or lack of it and could see that there was nothing which would impel someone to instantly push another person, causing his death. A possible example would be two people walking on a trail with a steep cliff next to them. One stumbles and he reaches out towards the other and accidentally pushes the other over the side. It would be obvious to any and to all that the act was wholly unintentional, but he is guilty of blood by doing that act. Verse 22 continues, or throws anything at him without lying in wait. Towards the end of the previous sermon in verse 20, the word sediyah or lying in wait was introduced. Now, this is its second and last use in Scripture. In verse 20, there was an intentional lying in wait to do harm. Here, that is lacking. Instead, the person throws something toward or at another and it causes death. It could be as simple as two people throwing a baseball. The one catching misses it and it donks him in the head, killing him. Or it could be that the two were in a traveling show where one throws knives at the other who's on a big spinning wheel. Unfortunately, the knife thrower, he missed his sleep the night before and his aim was a little bit off. The knife hits the femoral artery, the blood gushes forth, and the life is over. The same holds true with William Tell and his one day of poor marksmanship. Instead of hitting the apple, he accidentally hits the frontal lobe of his rather dull apple holder. As loony as it is to even do this type of thing, it was not a deliberate act, and both were in agreement in the performance, thus the act is one which is unintentional. Verse 23, or uses a stone by which a man could die. 
throwing it at him without seeing him so that he dies while he was not his enemy or seeking his harm. The word throwing is not actually correct. The Hebrew word is nafal, meaning to fall. One might think of a person working on a brick building. He loses hold of the brick and it goes careening over the wall. Unfortunately, someone happens into the work area and the brick plunks down on his head, killing him. The person who dropped the brick had no intention of killing anyone. After all, he was just laying another brick in the wall. But his action has caused death, and the Avenger could legally take action against him. Another example might be a person practicing his aim by throwing stones up at a target. If someone happens by and gets clunked in the head with one of the rocks as it comes down, it might kill him. There was nothing intentional, and the person had no malice aforethought. It was simply time and chance which stepped in and brought about the death. With the lack of evil intent, the person is a manslayer, but not a murderer. Deuteronomy 9 gives a bit of a different view of such things. I read this last week, but we're putting it in a different context now. And this is the case of the manslayer who flees there, that he may live. Whoever kills his neighbor unintentionally, not having hated him in time past, as when a man goes to the woods with his neighbor to cut timber and his hand swings a stroke with the axe to cut down the tree and the head slips from off the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he shall flee to one of these cities and live. If such unfortunate accidents occur, verse 24, then the congregation shall judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood according to these judgments. Here the word manslayer is not appropriate. If your Bible says manslayer or slayer, as the King James Version does, you want to make a correction. It is not the standard word here, ratzach, or manslayer, that is used so frequently in this chapter. Rather, it uses the word nakah, or to strike. Thus, it should say the striker. He is being set in contrast to the avenger of blood through the use of this descriptive word, the congregation is brought together in order to hold an official trial which is conducted according to the precisely stated wording which is found here and which is expanded on in the book of Deuteronomy. The words according to these judgments means that these are examples by which to guide any other similar situations. If the striker is deemed guilty, then he is a murderer. If he is deemed innocent, he is only a manslayer without advance intent to kill. Words are important. When they're not translated properly, you cannot get the sense of what is being said. Read many translations. All right, always do that. Verse 25, so the congregation shall deliver the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood. Here the judgment is made, and so the usual word ratzach is given. He is a manslayer, but he is deemed to have done it unintentionally. And because of this, he is given legal protection from the manslayer. If this provision were not given in the law, then any act of homicide, intentional or unintentional, would be deemed as acceptable for the avenger of blood to take revenge. Verse 25 continues, And the congregation shall return him to the city of refuge where he had fled. It is apparent that this means that the people of the city of refuge, where the manslayer went, had sent him, probably under Levitical guard, back to the city where the killing had actually taken place. There would have been a preliminary trial at the Levitical city to see if he even qualified to be taken in. Once summoned for a trial, he would be conducted to the city for that trial. If guilty, he would be executed right then and there. However, being found innocent, 
He is then returned to the Levitical city for refuge, which would last for a set but indeterminate amount of time, which was, verse 25 continues, and he shall remain there until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. One can see the providence of God in this. If what he did was the day when a new and young high priest was ordained, he may be there for the remainder of his life. If what he did was a week before the current high priest died, he would only have to be in refuge for that one week. The reason for this mandate and this provision is twofold. The first is that Hakohen Hagadol, or the priest, the great, represented the nation before God. He did this with the holy offerings, and he did it in his mediatorial role on the Day of Atonement. This is seen several times, but two pertinent examples are found first in Exodus and then in Leviticus, from Exodus chapter 28. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel on the breastplate of judgment over his heart when he goes into the holy place as a memorial before the Lord continually. And you shall put in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and Thummim, and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. So Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. And then from Leviticus chapter 10, why have you not eaten the sin offering in a holy place? Since it is most holy and God has given it to you to bear the guilt of the congregation to make atonement for them before the Lord. See, its blood was not brought inside the holy place. Indeed, you should have eaten it in the holy place as I commanded. If you understand now why it's so important, everything has been happening in a particular order. Exodus introduces something. Leviticus talks about something. And then we find out how important those obscure passages were when we're here in the book of Numbers, pointing to something that affects every person who is a murderer or a manslayer. The high priest bore the judgment of the children of Israel, and the priest bore the guilt of the congregation through the eating of the sin offering. As the high priest was ultimately responsible for this and for the rites of the Day of Atonement, he bore the guilt of the people. In the case of the manslayer, another thought, however, comes into play. Two more verses are needed to see this, and both are found in this chapter in just a few more verses, but you have to understand what's being said first. Here we go. Numbers 35, 31. Moreover, you shall take no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. Everybody see the high priest cannot bear the guilt of this person. He is a murderer. Okay. The second one, Numbers 35, verse 33. So you shall not pollute the land where you are for blood defiles the land and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed on it except by the blood of him who shed it that applies to both the manslayer and the murderer okay the guilty must be put to death period nothing else was acceptable but the innocent is also guilty of shedding blood for which no atonement could be made except by the blood of the one who shed it therefore the day of atonement where all sins are forgiven all of them are atoned for. It could not atone for this act. Isn't that something? Because we've already determined that all of us are guilty of murder. James has said it and John has said it. However, because the high priest bore the judgment and the guilt of the manslayer, his death alone could expiate 
those sins. My hair is standing up all over me if you're getting it, if you're understanding what's going on. When he died, because he bore the guilt of the act, the act of the law, and thus the law of the act died with him. The manslayer was now free from his guilt. This is why the same word is used for both murderer and manslayer. The guilt of bloodshed is the same for both, regardless if it's intentional or unintentional. As we saw already, the word which defines this act, rasach, is first found as a precept in the law itself, in the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. And yet, if you even did it by innocence, you have shed innocent blood and you are guilty. People question if what Paul refers to in Colossians chapter 2 and what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 7, 8, and 10 about the law, meaning the law of Moses being annulled in Christ actually applies to the Ten Commandments or not. This verse right here that we're looking at answers that question. The Ten Commandments are the basis for the law, and they are, along with the entire law of Moses, annulled, obsolete, and set aside in Christ. And that scares people. Oh, what are you saying? The Ten Commandments aren't in effect anymore? That is exactly right. If that was not true, then why are we not here on Saturday having a Saturday Sabbath? Because that's the fourth commandment, and everybody understands that that's done. Now in him we find our rest. We who believe do enter that rest, it says in Hebrews 4.3. So how can it be that if we're not observing that, that we're not guilty of breaking every other commandment? It's because every other commandment that is in the Ten Commandments happens to be repeated in the New Covenant. And so we're not to kill anybody. Everybody understand that? The law of Moses, including the Ten Commandments, is done. It is done. Okay? The second reason is because in this, there is a typological prefiguring of Christ. Okay? Have we got the mechanics down yet? Not entirely, but we're getting there. Okay? Albert Barnes, at the beginning of our sermon today, said that this picture is Christ, but he didn't explain how. And not one person that I read, and I'm not saying that I'm the only person that knows this, but nobody I read who made the greatest commentaries in Christian history and who dealt with people before them all the way back to the very beginning. They read the Greek and the Latin manuscripts. They didn't comment on this either. But there is a reason. There is a mechanic how this works, and we're finding this out today. It prefigures Christ. That will be explained later. But simply stated for now, the high priest was the mediator of the law. As this is so, the final judgment of the law, whether he officiated at that trial or not, was his. As far as the person in the city of refuge, the time of his dwelling there would be solely up to that one determination, the death of the great priest. But it stood firm. At no time could he leave and be safe from the avenger of blood otherwise. This is seen with verse 26. But if the manslayer, this is you, you've gone to the sea of refuge because you unintentionally killed somebody and you've gone for refuge. If you, the manslayer, at any time goes outside the limits of the city of refuge where he fled, and if going out, he goes out. These words must be taken in connection with verse 28. At any time means at any time before the death of the high priest. The one who has shed blood is covered by this provision of the law only as long as he is in a city of refuge. The city of refuge is a Levitical city, a city which represents the firstborn of Israel. This must be remembered from back in Numbers chapter 8. Here's what it said there. I have taken the Levites instead of all of the firstborn of the children of Israel. And I have given the Levites as a gift to Aaron and his sons from among the children of Israel. 
to do the work for the children of Israel in the tabernacle of meeting and to make atonement for the children of Israel that there be no plague among the children of Israel when the children of Israel come near the sanctuary. So he's taken them in place of the firstborn. That means that this person going into that Levitical city of refuge is among his actual brothers because they have been replacing the firstborn of the family. Everybody see this? There's a firstborn relationship now. The cities of refuge being Levitical cities are thus, as it says in Numbers 8, under the authority of Aaron and his sons. Therefore, the manslayer is represented by the firstborn, and he is under the protection of the life of the high priest. He is safe from the law because he is safe within the high priest who bore his guilt. Everybody heard the term in Christ before? You're getting it right here. To leave the city would then expose him to danger. Verse 27, then the avenger of blood finds him outside the limits of his city of refuge. The person has willfully left the only place of protection for his life. The city border is a sanctuary and he has been provided asylum. But with the high priest still alive, he is not protected outside of its border. If the avenger hears of it and finds him, verse 27 continues, and the avenger of blood kills the manslayer, he shall not be guilty of blood. Isn't that something? I can go kill somebody that killed my brother and I'm not guilty of anything. The man has forfeit his life. He was found innocent of intentional murder, but he still bears the guilt of having shed blood. The act is still considered ratzach. It was an unsanctioned taking of human life in contradistinction to harag or killing which can be sanctioned. We send our soldiers off to war and they kill. That is not unsanctioned murder. That is sanctioned murder. Oh, I'm not murder. Forget that word murder. Killing. Thank you. All right. If somebody commits a capital crime in America and we send them to the gallows, that is what he deserves. The state is not guilty of murder. They have killed a person that deserved to be killed. Everybody got that as well. Okay. The blood is shed. There is no atonement for shedding of blood except by the blood of the one who shed it. And therefore, the avenger is not guilty of shedding further blood. Instead, he is justified in his taking of this life, which bears blood guilt. Not only is it his right to do so, it is his obligation to do so. Verse 28, because he should have remained in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. Somebody must bear the responsibility and guilt for what occurred. The Lord accepted that the high priest would be the one to do this for the sins of his people. But the guilt of blood could only be borne by him. It could not be atoned for, as we have seen and will see. Therefore, as long as he lived, the guilt was either borne by him or by the one who had committed the act. The manslayer is only safe within the Levitical city of refuge, which falls under the jurisdiction of the high priest. However, verse 28 continues, but after the death of the high priest, the manslayer may return to the land of his possession. Oh, I just got a big relief reading that. The guilt is freed from him and it has been lifted from the high priest because he has died. The blood has been avenged through death. Therefore, he who was the avenger of blood is no longer so. Boy, my hair is standing up all over my body if you can just see what is being pictured here. If this person were to kill this man whose blood guilt has been removed, he would bear blood guilt and would himself be liable to the avenger. 
as the high priest bore the judgment and the guilt of Israel, and as he has died, the judgment which was passed and the guilt which he bore on behalf of his people died with him. However, being a high priest of the law, the law did not die with him. It continued on to the next generation. If the freed man, the person that just left the Levitical city, killed again accidentally, he would once again be bound by the provisions of this chapter. Everybody see that the law is continuing even though the high priest died. Okay, verse 29. And these things shall be a statute of judgment to you throughout your generations in all your dwellings. Here is the term lechukat mishpat, or for a statute of judgment. It is only found here and in Numbers 27, verse 11, which dealt with inheritances of property. Does anybody know what Numbers chapter 36, the next and last chapter of the book of Numbers deals with? Does anybody know? Inheritances. It is the inheritance of Zelophehad. Is everybody seeing things fit for a reason? Everything fits for a reason, Okay. The idea of both a statute of the Lord that entails a fixed, permanent, and authoritatively established judgment is what is found in Numbers 27.11. It defines and determines a legal right. In this case, it was a legally binding precept under the law of Moses and which would continue under that same law for all of the generations to come until the law would find its fulfillment and ending. The judgment was made, the statute was enacted, and it is legally and permanently binding for all under the law. Verse 30, whoever kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the testimony of witnesses, but one witness is not sufficient testimony against a person for the death penalty. The intent here is obvious. Anyone can make a claim on another person, especially when it may involve family of the deceased or when it involves someone who hates the person who is accused. We've seen that in Washington numerous times in the past several months. We've had Supreme Court justices lied against because they're hated because of what they believe in. We've got a president that is maligned. So the law needs to have a protection for people like that. In Deuteronomy 17, verse 6, the number is set at two or three witnesses for anyone who could be put to death for a crime. This is extended to all iniquity or sin in Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. Jesus repeats the precept in John 8, 17. Paul uses it as a precept in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 1, and the author of Hebrews refers to this precept for anyone who rejected the law of Moses in Hebrews chapter 10. It is a safeguard which is intended for the protection of all due to the obviously wicked heart of man or the fallibility of man to properly discern what may have occurred in a matter his eyes actually witnessed. That's why we don't have just one witness. We have two or three. Verse 31, moreover, you shall take no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. What this means is that a person who has shed blood and who has been judged guilty, thus identifying him as a murderer, cannot appeal for his life through some sort of a payment, nor can anyone else offer a payment to buy back his life. This goes back to Exodus 21, where a person could redeem his life from a death sentence handed out for another reason. If an ox gores a man or a woman to death, then the ox shall surely be stoned. The life is taken. The one that killed the man, meaning the ox, has shed blood. It must die. There's no exception to that law right there. Everybody got that? Okay. 
and its flesh shall not be eaten. Remember, the high priest eats the sacrifices to bear the guilt of the people. We saw that a few minutes ago. The beast is, dies in its guilt, and nobody is allowed to eat it because it is guilty of shedding blood, okay? But the owner of the ox shall be acquitted. He didn't do anything wrong. But if the ox tended to thrust with its horn in times past, and it has been made known to his owner, and he has not kept it confined so that it has killed a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. If there is imposed on him a sum of money, here it is, then he shall pay to redeem his life, whatever is imposed on him. He didn't actually do the killing. The ox did, and he may buy back his life. He did not do the shedding of the blood. If he did, atonement could not be made for him. He would either be a murderer or a manslayer, death or a city of refuge. Okay, everybody got that. But in this case, he can buy back his life. The man did not commit ratzach or unsanctioned bloodshed. Therefore, he could purchase his life back at whatever payment was imposed. If he could not pay, then he died. The person who is murdered, however, could not buy back his life. This is because of what it says coming up in verse 33. Further, verse 32, And you shall take no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge, that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the high priest. Of this, the pulpit commentary states, No one might buy off the enmity of the avenger before the appointed time, for that would give an unjust advantage to wealth, and it would make the whole matter mercenary and vulgar. This is not correct. The fact that a person could redeem his life from what his ox had done, as noted just a moment ago, shows that this is incorrect. The reason for this will be explained in the final verses of this chapter. What is true here is that a ransom may satisfy the avenging relative, but it cannot satisfy the justice of God. For now, the same law applies to the person who committed unintentional ratzach or unsanctioned bloodshed, and it is for the same reason as verse 33 will explain. He could not buy his way out of what he did at any price. Rather, he had to stay in the city of refuge as long as the high priest lived. No price, no matter how high, could be enough. The psalmist was referring to this general precept when he wrote these words about the surety of death from Psalm 49. Those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their souls is costly, and it shall cease forever that he should continue to live eternally and not see the pit. Once again, that's all of us, folks. The reason that a ransom could not be paid for either was because there was unsanctioned killing. Intentional or unintentional, it makes no difference. When the death was unsanctioned, there was a price assigned to that act. Verse 33, so you shall not pollute the land where you are, for blood defiles the land, and no atonement, no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. Here is a new word, chanef. It signifies to pollute or to profane. It comes from a primitive root meaning to soil. This is especially so in a moral sense, soiling in a moral sense. The intent of the words is obviously that of unsanctioned killing. Otherwise, Israel would be guilty of bloodshed any time that they went into battle. But David understood that this was not the case when he said this about Joab. I read this last week. I'm reading it again this week. Moreover, you know also what Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me, 
and what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel, to Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed. And he shed the blood of war in peacetime and put the blood of war on his belt that was around his waist and on his sandals that were on his feet. In unsanctioned killing, there was a polluting of the land which could not be atoned for except by the blood of the person who shed it. This same word is used by the psalmist with these words from Psalm 106, verse 38. And shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. As this is a standard which precedes the law of Moses, it is an eternal standard, and thus it, like Israel under the law who sacrificed their children, applies to those who do so to the gods of self-convenience and wickedness through abortion. And I'm going to extend that right now. I'm going to extend that, what I just said. If you commit abortion, you are a murderer and you fall under this category, but I'm going to extend it. If you vote for a Democrat, any Democrat in the United States of America, they have signed the Democrat Party platform. It doesn't matter if they say, I agree with abortion or not. They have signed the Democrat Party platform of the United States of America, which insists on abortion on demand. They have signed a blood document and they are guilty of that blood and it transfers to you when you vote for a Democrat. This is what's being pictured right here. This is not something that is made up. That psalm just proved it because it's the same word speaking in the same context. We must be careful with what we do with our voices in this nation. It is of the highest importance. It is just one more reason on a heaped up pile of reasons why those who do such things desperately need to come to Jesus. And it is why this nation, among the many other nations who approve of this practice, will be plunged into complete destruction in the years ahead. It's called the tribulation period and is coming soon to a world near you. Such bloodshed defiles the land. Verse 34 finishes with, therefore do not defile the land which you inhabit in the midst of which I dwell. For I, the Lord, dwell among the children of Israel. Of verses 31 and 32 which referred to not accepting a ransom for either the murder or the freeing of the manslayer, Cambridge says this, these prohibitions emphasize the extreme value of human life. This is an incorrect statement. Humanity makes itself worthless through their actions, even to the point where God has destroyed and he will again destroy the entire planet, minus very few. He even said it to Israel, you make yourself worthless with your idols. The reason for these provisions is because God is holy. Until we can understand the holiness of God, we cannot see sin, meaning our own sin in its proper light. The Lord is teaching Israel that unholiness bears a weight of guilt, and that weight must be placed somewhere. To defile the land where the Lord dwelt was to bring contempt upon the holiness of the Lord. For the one who innocently shed such blood and defiled the land, the Lord made provisions in the cities of refuge. But for the guilty, no provision could be made. The nature of God demands that a violation of his holiness must be corrected through a judicial process. I typed that at the end of last week's sermon. 
Burke reads every sermon on Sunday afternoon. Instead of going to church, he reads the sermon and he emailed me immediately and he said, you should take what you typed at the end of that sermon before the closing verse and put it on a pamphlet and hand it out to people so they understand the holiness of God and what his righteousness demands. Go back and listen to the last two minutes of the sermon if you want to hear it. There is a weight and a guilt that must go through a judicial process. His righteous character demands that it must be so, and yet his mercy allows for it to be borne by another. This was the burden of the high priest. The Lord was instructing the world through the people of Israel that these fixed and eternal standards must be met. They must be. But the provisions for how they can be met outside of the imposition of the penalty upon the guilty were made available. Proof that this is so, not only for Israel, but for any and all who acknowledge him, comes from the words of Paul, which reflect the sentiment of this final verse of the day. Here's what Paul says to the people in Corinth. Guess what? They are Gentiles. So here's freedom for you and me too, folks. I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. As I said earlier, there were two reasons for the mandate that the offender had to remain in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. The second reason I gave was that these things anticipate Christ. That is what will be seen next. Do not defile the land in which you live, for amongst the midst of you there I dwell. To you the blessings of heaven I will give, or from me will come the tortures of eternal hell. For I dwell among you, even I the Lord, therefore be holy as I am holy. This you must be. In this you will receive my promised reward, and there shall be peace between you and me. Do not profane the land, but keep it pure and undefiled, and between us there shall be a state of harmony. In this upon you I have smiled, and together we shall dwell for all eternity. Our second thought today is our great high priest. Chapter 35 deals with the cities of the Levites. They were taken in place of the firstborn of Israel to minister between the priests and the people, but they stand as representative of the firstborn. It is the first typological point concerning Christ, who is the firstborn, that they anticipate. From their cities, six cities were named as places of refuge. In Scripture, as we saw a couple sermons ago, six is the number of man, especially fallen man. It is five, meaning grace, plus one, or man's addition to it. It is seven, spiritual perfection, minus one, or coming short of spiritual perfection. The cities are given as a haven for such. That means you and me. They are a place of grace for those who fall short, but who seek refuge. The cities themselves do not save. They only protect. And they only do so by the voluntary act of the man staying in them. Thus, the cities were anticipatory of Christ for Israel. One under the law still had the hope of Messiah. And in such a hope, the sin of the man was not imputed. This was spoken by David and cited by Paul with these words. This is David now under the old covenant. He said these words, which Paul is now going to cite. Here we go. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David under the law, a man under the law, also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Here's what David said. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. 
David was a man under the law. It was the law that said sin was to be imputed. And yet David wrote that there was a blessedness for the man to whom the Lord did not impute sin. The law is of works, and yet a person could be deemed righteous by faith. The city of refuge was such a place. The man was guilty, but his guilt could be taken away, but not by the law. It could only be taken away by a provision of grace within the law, the anticipation of Messiah. We saw that the priests ate the sacrifice of the sin offering in order to bear the sins of the people. Remember that verse I read 10 minutes ago? But we are told in Hebrews that such sacrifices actually did nothing. The blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. And so these sacrifices were only anticipatory of the coming of Jesus Christ. We saw this in each of the countless sacrifices of Leviticus and Numbers. Each detail anticipated Christ. And so the sin animal offerings eaten by the priests did not actually take away the sin. The high priest only bore the sin of the people in an anticipatory way. That anticipation was what? Of Christ to come. And that takes us to the high priest. It specifically noted that it was he who was anointed with oil. The picture takes us back to the Leviticus and what that anointing anticipated. The word in Leviticus is mashach, or anoint. It is the root of the word mashiach, or messiah, the anointed one. In Isaiah chapter 61, the anointed one was anticipated. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Luke says that Christ went into the synagogue, read that portion of scripture and stated that it was fulfilled in their hearing. He was proclaiming that he was the one anointed by God as Messiah. Those who had transgressed the law through bloodshed found safe refuge in the Levitical city of refuge. When the high priest was alive, he bore the guilt of the judgment and the guilt of the offender. But he didn't actually bear the guilt because the animal which they ate to bear the guilt of the people could not be a suitable substitute to bear guilt. It was only a type of Christ. But when Christ came, he could bear the guilt, and he did. He is the fulfillment of the Levitical city of refuge. He is the fulfillment of the animal bearer of guilt substitute. He is also the fulfillment of the anointed high priest who then bore the guilt. And in that capacity, and with that burden of guilt, he also died. This is why we're here today. Christmas. A little baby born into the stream of humanity, born in a manger, not in a king's palace, and yet the king of the universe came among us with one purpose, fulfill the law and die in fulfillment of that law. This is why we are here today. We celebrate Christmas and we wonder, why do we do this year after year? Because we need to be reminded of the glory of what God did in Jesus Christ. As we said of the high priest of Israel a few minutes ago, we can now say of the fulfillment of that high priestly position in Christ. When he died, because he bore the guilt of the act, the act of the law, and thus the law of the act died with him. The manslayer was now free from his guilt. This is what Paul wrote about in Colossians chapter 2. 
Though he is speaking to Gentiles, the premise remains the same concerning what occurred because there is one gospel for Jew and for Gentile. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, meaning the law of Moses, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle over them, triumphing over them in it. The anointed one, the Messiah, the true high priest died on the cross of Calvary and the handwriting of that law died with him. In that death, the law is taken away and the captives are set free. Some might claim that the idea of the city of refuge means that a person could lose his salvation. You could come to that conclusion in this because if you leave the city of refuge, then you can die, right? If they left the city, they were subject to the avenger of blood. Such is exactly the opposite. That is speaking of before, not after the high priest dies. That looked to Israel before the coming of Messiah. Those who trusted in Messiah died in faith. They stayed in the city of refuge and in faith they lived. They were kept in the city of refuge until Christ's coming. In the death of Messiah, the captives are freed. Verse 26 cannot be taken to indicate a loss of salvation. In fact, it proclaims eternal salvation. For those who come to Christ after the act, Charles Ellicott provides sufficient detail to explain their state. Here's what he says. As the bodily safety of the Israelite, who had slain a man depended upon his strict observance of the law, which required him to remain within the city of refuge until the death of the high priest, so in the same way the spiritual safety of the believer depends upon his exclusive reliance upon the merits and efficacy of the atoning death and righteousness of Christ seeing that there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we may be saved. Neither is there salvation in any other. He cites Acts 4.12 there. If the person of Israel left the city of refuge, it meant that he was under law. He was not under grace if he went out. And that state remains today. One can choose the law of Moses. Oh boy, I'm going to show God how great I am. Or he can choose grace but he cannot have both. The author of Hebrews makes this clear when speaking of the new and old covenants. But Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. And those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. One can be under law with a priest who dies and stays dead and a law which continues to condemn, or he can come to Christ who lives forever and to the grace which is offered freely unto eternal salvation. 
At the beginning of our verses today, John showed us that we have all committed murder. We may have done it unintentionally, and some of us may have done it intentionally, but we have a greater hope than our pitiful actions. As the author of Hebrews says, Hebrews chapter 6, thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. He is our city of refuge. He is our firstborn. He is our high priest. He is the sacrifice. He is everything to the believer everything. Israel had cities of refuge until the coming of Christ and his death for them. The tragically flawed thinking that we must continue to adhere to the law of Moses now is shown false in the passage today. In fact, it is a self-condemning act because such a person rejects what the law only anticipated, freedom in Christ. We have a place of refuge that we too can flee to in order to keep us out of the death that we deserve. Let us flee to the grace of God in Christ and be saved from what we as humans otherwise deserve. Now, having said that, having given you the instruction on this most marvelous of passages, I would like to tell you that this also explicitly shows that there is no other way to get to heaven outside of Jesus Christ because there is no other cure for the sin problem because we've all murdered and this murderer could not have his sins atoned for. If you think, oh, I can atone for my sins. I've done this or that under, you know, Islam or under Buddhism or under Hinduism or something else. Great. If you think that'll atone for it, but God has a standard on the shedding of blood innocently. That is an eternal standard. It was given back at the time of Noah. Genesis chapter 9. This isn't a precept from the law of Moses. This goes forever. It is God's eternal standard. It's repeated again later in Joshua. There is no hope outside of Jesus Christ to have this guilt of murder. And because God looks at intent, as we saw at the very beginning of the sermon, he does not look at the actual act. He looks at the intent. And because we have all done what both James and John have said that we have done, we are guilty of murder in God's eyes. And there is no hope except the city of refuge. I would ask today that you, if you have never come to Jesus Christ, if you have never simply humbled yourself and said, I guess I need a savior. I desperately need him to forgive me of what I have done. My murders, my thefts, my adulteries, my lying, all of the things that have separated me from him. I come to that city of refuge and I plead my case because my high priest has already died for my sins and I want to find my refuge in him for all eternity. And it is done when you do that. Please, today, come to Jesus Christ. I have a closing verse for you from Revelation 6.10 to help you understand this passage that we've been looking at for the past three sermons. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? There is an avenger of blood. And he is Jesus Christ, and he will avenge the blood of his people. Remember that guy we read about here today? Funny that I read that. I usually don't because we don't have time, but I read this. This guy went to the gallows because he loved Jesus Christ. His blood will be avenged. Next week is Numbers 36, 1 through 13. Wow, great stuff. If you just go read those 13 verses and tell me why that's there. Why does it end Numbers? It's the last sermon in Numbers, which makes me rather sad 
It's entitled The Inheritance of Zelophehad. That'll be your 71st Numbers sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It may seem at times as if you're lost in a desert and you're wandering aimlessly, but the Lord is there and he's carefully leading you to the land of promise and he's a safe refuge as he does. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? I got a poem here for you. Oh, wait, before I do, I got a Maserati for somebody. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to do something a little different. I'm actually going to ask you just to repeat what I've said today. I alluded to this a few minutes ago, but I want you to understand it fully. How can we know that the law is ended in Christ and that all of our sin is forgiven forever in him? Why does that not apply to any high priest who died? Any high priest who died. Why is it only in Christ? That's all I needed right there. They couldn't bear the sin guilt because they already had sin. Yeah, that's it. I mean, listen, I just wanted you to understand that. That's why when the high priest died, the law continued. It's because he had sin. He couldn't fulfill the law. And so the law continued. And I stressed that two or three times during the sermon. The law continued. The high priest has died. The guilt is removed. But the law continued and another high priest came. Why? Simple answer. He didn't have sin. I'm talking about Jesus. The law ended in Christ. That guy did have sin, and the law had to continue. That's the answer. It's so simple, but you don't think of that when you're reading these verses, and you say, oh, i got to read another chapter in Numbers before I get out of there. Right? It's marvelous. It's marvelous what God has done. Here we go. Until the death of the high priest. However, if he pushes him suddenly without enmity, or throws anything at him without lying in wait, or uses a stone by which a man could die, throwing it at him without seeing him so that he dies, such is his fate, while he is not his enemy or seeking his harm, then the congregation shall judge guilt or innocence between the manslayer and the avenger of blood according to these judgments. So the congregation shall deliver the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood, saving his head. And the congregation shall return him to the city of refuge where he had fled." And he shall remain there until the death of the high priest, who is anointed with the holy oil until he is deceased. But if the manslayer at any time goes outside the limits of the city of refuge where he fled, and the avenger of blood finds him outside the limits of the city of refuge, he had better dread. And the avenger of blood kills the manslayer? He shall not be guilty of blood. From guilt he is released, because he should have remained in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest." But after the death of the high priest, so we learn, the manslayer to the land of his possession may return. And these things shall be a statute of judgment to you throughout your generations and all your dwellings, so you shall do. Whoever kills a person, the murderer, shall be put to death on the testimony of witnesses, so shall it be. But one witness is not sufficient testimony against a person for the death penalty. Moreover, you shall take no ransom for the life of a murderer who is of death guilty but he shall be put to death, surely. And you shall take no ransom for him who has to his city of refuge fled, that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the high priest, yes, until he is dead. So you shall not pollute the land where you are, for blood defiles the land, and no atonement can be made for the land. For blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it, this you must understand." Therefore, do not defile the land which you inhabit, in the midst of which I dwell. For I, the Lord, dwell among the children of Israel. Lord God, we are even now in a wilderness, and we are wanting to be led by you. 
Without you to direct our lives would be a mess, and so be our guide, O God, you who are faithful and true. We long for the water in this barren land. May it flow forth from the rock, our souls to satisfy. Give us this refreshing spiritual hand, and may we take it into our lives daily. It apply, and we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful, wonderful story of Christmas. The babe in a manger is the Savior on the tree. Thank you for that, Lord. He came to do what we could not do. He lived a life that was under the law, which stood opposed to us and against us. And he lived it perfectly, and he fulfilled it. And in him it is taken away. What freedom we have in Christ. What grace has been bestowed upon us. What mercy there on Calvary. Thank you, Lord God, for our Lord Jesus, our Savior, our Redeemer, our place of refuge, and our great high priest. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. I still have to think through the act of the law and the law of the act. Absolutely. Go ahead. Read it a couple times. Think on it. Here, let me pull that out. Let me pull that out right now. Here's what it says. This goes back to, um, uh, okay. When he died, Jesus, because he bore the guilt of the act, I'm guilty of murder. He bore that. He is my high priest. When he died, he bore the guilt of the act, the act of the law, which is the act that I did in the law. I violated the law. And thus the law of the act, the law of Moses is dead. It's dead too. It died with him. Okay, now in the high priest, it only died with him until the next high priest. Okay, the law continued. But with Jesus, the law itself is done. Everybody see that? That's what happened with him. All right.